Hello and welcome to Out to Lunch, the place where we feast on conversation and food all at the same time. Today I have the pleasure of talking to and eating with a journalist, broadcaster and author who's written a dating column for the Sunday Times and is now their in-house Agni aunt. She's written a memoir based around her relationships and more recently a work of fiction about someone else's. Oh, and she hosts the wonderfully successful High Low podcast with Pandora Sykes. It's the marvellously witty and wise Dolly Alderton. She had a household where her mum was talked to her about masturbation and was very like, you know, it's this amazing thing. It's a great relationship you can have with yourself and you will have it forever. And she said it actually ruined wanking for her. She was like, every time she went to do it, she was just thinking, oh, mum would be proud. <laughs> So normally at this point, we're standing on the street outside the restaurant that I'm about to interview my guest in. But the street where I'm standing was well, about 300 metres below us because I'm on the 33rd floor of the Shard near London Bridge. There's quite a few floors above us. But the floor that I'm on uh, is home to Hutong, which is a northern Chinese restaurant. The food is very, very good. I come here with my family sometimes. It's a special occasion place. It really is spicy, rich full on. Dolly is a pescatarian and there is lots on this menu for pescatarians. Let's pop along and find our table. Dolly! Hello! Welcome. How are you doing? I don't know how to greet you. We, we just do that. Okay. We do that. We, we wave, wave at each other. <laughs> thank you for thank you for coming. Oh, thank you so much for having me in this amazing location. We are you know, quite far way up the, yeah. up the shard with a view just past that pillar. You should be able to see St Paul's. All I can see, because I'm a North London girl and I'm like a homing pigeon, is the yeah. BT Tower. Because I know from any messy night out, when I see the BT Tower, I'm safe. Right. I'm on the home stretch. So we're in a sort of private space, which is slightly open with lots of screens and red lanterns and the slight rattle of the air conditioning. This is Agna, who's going to be serving us today. Hi, Agna. Good afternoon. I have to say, the sound of this podcast was one of the things that really saved me during lockdown because I accidentally ended up marooned on a beach in a cottage in Devon in the middle of nowhere by myself for three months. Bloody hell. Yeah, and... It was exactly the right thing that I should have done. I did go slightly insane. And when I was going slightly insane, I listened on repeat to the first series of your podcast because I could just, I just missed clatter and noise and atmosphere and lots of groups of people. It was so soothing to me listening to it. Well, that's, you know, that's a perfect advert. We're going to put that out as a clip now. <laughs> we are therapeutic. Yeah. You and I, we share a number of things okay. as it happens. Yeah. But one of those is an absolute love for Nora Ephron's novel, Heartburn. Oh, yeah, I love that book. Which kind of is sharp and witty. It's the kind of book most, most us writers wish we'd written. Yeah. If you don't know it, it's a sort of Romana Clef, thinly veiled account of her marriage to Carl Bernstein, how it all fell apart when he went and had her first. Yeah. There's a moment in that book where she throws a key lime pie in the face of her cheating husband. Yes. Have you ever thrown a food item over an errant lover? Uh, no, I haven't, but I have made that recipe for key lime pie quite a few times. Uh, have you? Yeah, Because the thing so about the novel good. is that it also it contains recipes. Yeah. Which means that none of us can now write a novel actually with recipes in it. I know. Well, I actually I did do it in my memoir. I know. I completely ripped her off. Because my novel that's coming out... <laughs> there we go. That took about seven minutes. Well, we'll get to go. <laughs> 
that has a uh, protagonist who's a food writer. Mm. I did think about doing the recipe thing again. But the recipe thing in the first book really pissed a lot of people off. They did, did not like it, no. Why, why did it piss people off? I think people thought that I thought I was a chef. And actually, what I was offering really is, you know, when you're writing memoir, what you are looking for is intimacy and closeness and proximity to the the smells and the feelings and the sights of, of what... It's meant to be vivid, it's meant to be evocative, so I just thought it was another way of bringing people in, into what was that period of my life, but I think people just thought... You know, that's like a recipe for scrambled eggs, so I think people... <laughs> Uh, well, so, so here, uh, I'm now going to write recipes and the recipes are going to be for such basic things. Yeah, it was like scrambled eggs, mac and cheese, a fried egg sandwich. Um... What do they want, beef wellington? Well, you wouldn't do that anyway because you don't eat red meat. No, and I'm also going to be one of those guests. I'm a huge fan of this podcast, so I know all the tropes of it. I'm going to be one of those guests who really piss you off, Jay. Oh, go on. I don't eat meat for sort of ethical reasons. Yeah, that's fine. I miss meat every day. Okay. I sometimes get very drunk and have a bit of meat if I know it's high welfare meat. Okay. That's so, annoying, there, so, so, so there's a kind of correlation between low welfare treatment of yourself getting bladdered <laughs> leading to the consumption of high welfare animals. Precisely. Precisely. Well, that's perfect, isn't yeah. it? So do you want to have a look? Yeah. There's one dish we have to have. Oh, what's that? Which is it's called the Red Lantern, which is uh, crispy soft shell crabs in a massive bucket of red chilies. Oh, yum. Yes, please. And it's brilliant. <laughs> Is there anything particular that you you want to see on this table? No, I mean you you're probably me? so bored of your dining companion saying this to you, but I would so prefer no, no, to No, no, that makes me feel much lead. better about myself. Yeah, so okay, I'm good. not I'm not bored of that. Right. Can we have the dim sum platter? Lovely. And the crispy prawn rolls. Lovely. Do you fancy a ginger lobster bao? Yeah. Yeah. Great. The Red Lantern and the what fried cod fillet? The fried noodles with seasoned vegetables. Seasonal vegetables, lovely. And some what fried kailan with ginger sauce. Lovely. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you. You just you've described yourself, this is a reference childhood, as a total pervert because you were constantly all over the joy of sex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So do you think your parents left it out as a copy for you to, you know, self-educate or had they, did you have to find it? I had to find it. I think the mistake that my mum made actually, she was very open about sex but she only talked about sex with this one type of language which if I have kids I would be very cautious of doing. Well tell me about the language. Well I'll be really interested, I mean I really am going to grill you on your mother Jay, I've been desperate <laughs> to meet you and talk about your mum. Um, I'd be interested to hear the language that she used my mum, when she talked about sex, it was sex is wonderful and it's this amazing connection that you can have with someone and blah, blah, blah. But it was always through the love. It was always through... It's an expression of love. It's someone you love. It should be about love. It's a language of love. But there's always a point in this podcast where I have to explain my mother was an agony aunt called Claire Rayner who wrote a lot of uh, sex advice columns and books. For those... so many books. Like, I was looking at her the list of her books. As a writer, you must never do this. <laughs> There How are, many books did she write? Uh, I believe it's 104. Oh, my God. And also, it's novels, non-fiction. It's everything. One of her books, The Body Book, which um, it was a sex advice... Well, it was about the whole body, but the, there was a passage on sex, and it had it was written with cartoon images. Yeah. And had a cartoon erection in there. Yeah. And the, the illustrator always put a little domestic item the child could focus on if they found what they were looking at a bit disconcerting. I so see. there'd often be a cat <laughs> wandering through or a dog digging under the bed or something. 
some of the language now. I suppose if you're, if you're talking about five-year-olds, four-year-olds, uh, vaginas were baby-making holes, and then mummy and daddy oh would have God. a special hug. Right, special hug. Yeah, special I remember the hug. special hug. But did she say to you... Very clear as I got older that right. sex was also about... It was fun. Yeah. And, you know... And that you just have to like someone, and you have to know they respect you, but yeah. you do not have to be in love with them. No. But do you think that your mum, with well, that she, openness, do you think that that made you buck back against it and, and be more... No, didn't at all. No. My parents were married to each other and no-one else for yeah. over 50 years. There was a lot of sexy stuff going through the house. Yeah. But it didn't make you prudish as a young man. No. 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 I felt competitive... Oh. Because I failed. I felt at one point I was given a double bed when I was 16 and it stayed resolutely empty apart mm. from me mm. for a, a very long time. And yeah. I did feel I'd sort of let her down a bit. <laughs> um, well, do you know what? I, I interviewed Sarah Pascoe. She said that she had a household where her mum was talked to her about masturbation and was very like, you know, it's this amazing thing. It's a great relationship you can have with yourself and you will have it forever. And, and you know, in, in the good parent handbook, you would think that is exactly the right thing that you should say to a young woman where shame around sex and your sexuality and your sexual appetite is so ubiquitous in culture. And she said it actually ruined wanking for her. Because terrible. she said that... What, she, she felt every, like... Because it was no longer a, a, a rebellion of any kind totally. or, or private. Because she was like, every time she went to do it, she was just thinking, oh, Mum would be proud. <laughs> yeah, there was a bit of that. Lovely, so to start, we have the dim sum platter for you. Thank you. So we have eight different dumplings, so two of each. We've got the scallop and prawn in the yellow with salmon egg. We've got the cod in seaweed with tobacco in the white. The pink ones are the rosé champagne shrimp and the green ones are the mushroom and spinach dumplings. Thank you so much. When you were growing up, you said you wanted to be a writer. Yes. And you were scribbling everywhere. Yeah, yeah. I have just always been someone who processes the world by talking about it and I think that's happened in lots of different ways over the years. I started blogging when I was 15 that I finished when I was 19, which amounted like hundreds and thousands of words it was like war and peace just about you know sitting on buses between Harrow and Edgware and Stanmore do you have the contents? I have the contents I obviously took it offline when I was about 21 thank God it's always been so much more than a hobby it's always been the way that I understand what's going on do you think in sentences? yeah I do and I think I have and this is not a nice thing about me I don't like it about me I think I have sort of movie protagonist syndrome do you know what I mean? You're always the lead in the movie in your head. Yes, yes, I think I, I, I do. I have no idea what you're talking about whatsoever. <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> when, you were, when you were finishing up at university, what was the plan in your head as you were coming to the end of that degree at Exeter? I did a journalism master's. And then I think... I wasn't sure that what I really, really wanted to do full-time was journalism because I think I knew, and I definitely knew when I did my journalism master's, but I'm not a natural news journalist and I'm not really an opinions journalist. So really the journalism that I threw myself into in my 20s, which worked really well at the time, was writing about my personal life and writing from my own experiences, which now I don't want to do at all, which is why being an agony aunt has been so exciting because it's a way of drawing on my experience and being personable without being truly, truly personal. But I also always wanted to write fiction or 
plays. I wanted to invent things as well. I, and, I, and because Nora Ephron is my heroine, I did see a woman who managed to do both things in her career. Sure. So and she started as a journalist and eventually became yeah. a screenwriter who wrote the script to Harry Met Sally, wrote and directed You've Got Mail. Yes. Before you got that, we've got to talk about Made in Chelsea, mm. which came about because you wrote a blog for someone yeah. and eventually gave advice to the producers. I mean, explain how that works. How do you structure a story when you're being thrown the mucky details of real people's lives? There was a team of producers and associate producers and they would have these very regular communications with the cast. That would then be fed to the story producers. We would have to create a structure in four parts that would follow the reality that we predicted would be happening within that episode given that we knew the cast very well and knew their sort of psychology quite well we knew their relationship dynamics quite well at this point and we'd been given as much information as possible you're now a novelist Mm -hmm. and you've written a very fine novel about women in their early 30s and dating and it's clear that you understand the importance of a narrative structure which is not episodic Mm. so it's not just one thing happens then another thing Mm. happens then another thing happens they all need to link together in a really satisfying way so that something pulls on something you read on page 10, you get to page 114. That's narrative structure, and you're really good at it. Oh, thanks. Um, but normal life, it's our, it's our great secret as writers, normal life isn't normally like that. I know. And quite often, I know. it is episodic. Yeah. And, you know, he did that, and then he did that, and then he... I mean, were you desperately trying to force a non-episodic narrative on... I've listened to Zadie Smith talk about this a lot with writers, that I think writers are often people who refuse to accept the lack of editorial control that they have over the random chaos of life. And the reason we order things and seek redress and reordering and correction on the page is a small act of defiance, petulance, control. It's our way of trying to put things in order in the way thematically and structurally we want them to be put in order which as we know works on the page doesn't work in real life in terms of in real life with Chelsea it was a really difficult it was a nightmare because every two hours something would change do you think you learnt a load about narrative from it well I'm so touched that you enjoyed the, the narrative structure of my novel because I took three months planning the structure and I used one of the basic formulas initially that we used to use to structure an episode of Chelsea. Do you want to tell me what that was? It's a very, very simple thing that I'm sure lots lots of writers use where it was an A story, a B story, a C story, a D story and maybe... An e if it a was a comedy, B. yeah, E story. Initially with Ghosts, colour-coded, so what's storyline A? It's about her relationship with this man, this love interest. What's storyline B? It's about her relationship with her father, who has dementia. And I go through these stories and I colour-coded them. So you know if A story, that needs to be the majority colour. B, that needs to be the second most You wanted colour. to see a visual representation of the structure of this so that you could go, yes. Yeah, that's what I did. I laid it all out. And I was like, why? Okay, so the E story is yellow. That's the most minority story. Therefore, well, there's too much yellow in part four. We need. So that was how formulaic I was. And I think from other novelists I've spoken to, I think that's quite a mad way of doing it. But I do think I really learned a lot from the structure of working on, an, on a TV show like that. How is your soft shell care? Yeah, all right, Amazing. good. Oh, there's some lobster bow, but they can, they can hold. Yeah. 
So the, the prospect of writing about dating, writing about your life. Yeah. Did you rub your hands with glee and think, Christ, have I got material for this? Because this yeah. is the life I've been leading. Yeah, totally. I'd been, I'd been using it for anecdotal mileage my whole life anyway, whether it was on a blog or in the pub, talking to friends or, to quote the great Nord, making it copy, making everything mm. copy. This was something that came very naturally to me. And also, like, I think when you're 26, I just... I was so much less private and I was so much less self-conscious and I was so... I really do think me writing that column paywalled made a massive difference. Except it has to be said, the Sunday Times, um, at that point, well, still is, was selling hundreds of thousands of copies... Yes. ...every week. It's a big paper. Yes, but it wasn't really people my age. Ah. Obviously, you, you turned it into a, a best-selling book. Not only were you on the pages of the style section, you would have been in the bestseller column of the Sunday Times as well. When the idea of writing everything I know about love, did you hesitate? Or did um, you go, hey, here I go? Do you know what? It's so, because now I'm so, so guarded about what I share. The change has been so enormous how guarded I am in terms of everything, how I vote, how I've, what I've been doing in lockdown, how my, what my views are post-pandemic where I shop I now I'm just so so protective of sharing any big details about don't challenge me I'll just try and get it all out of you <laughs> with that in mind now looking back and occasionally opening that book that I have to sometimes do if I have to do readings of it or whatever, I just can't believe the chutzpah of that girl I'm just like why are you not nervous first of all I had fewer people reading me and second of all I, I was in the middle of therapy for the first time in my life. Having these like, extraordinary revelations week on week with this very tough Freudian therapist. So I was just in that... Ther have you done therapy? No, no. Have you not? I've, I've often referred to it on this, that I spent one hour with Susie Orbach. Oh, I love But I'd Susie already Orbach. worked out what the issue was. It was only one. I mean, to get but a session with Susie Orbach, Jay, that would not have been a session to waste. Well, I go to lectures that she does. <laughs> She's so brilliant. I fucking paid for it. Um, <laughs> no, I haven't, but I am interested. Did, did you enjoy it? I'm now not in Freudian therapy. I do CBT now. And I said to my lady this week, one point I said, oh, now I know this sounds silly. And she said to me, this is the sole purpose for me, Dolly. You sound as silly as you like. You don't. And there, there is a real freedom in that. Was, was this to deal with any pathological issues? Were you suffering from anxiety or depression, or did you just think...? Well, the first time I went into therapy um, was... Yeah, it was very bad anxiety. It was very, very bad patterns in love, very bad patterns with men, self-destructive behaviour, just a bit of a mess. Everything was a mess, and she... One of my best friends had gone to her. She had transformed in front of my eyes... She was very, very tough, very tough. And no, the answer is I didn't enjoy it at all. I dreaded it, I hated it every week. But I don't think I would have been able to write that memoir. I don't think I would be living on my own. I, do, I really do see, like, the beginning of my adult life really happening after I finished there. Was there at any point a, um, a tension between living the life so you had material for the book and the column and getting yourself sorted out so you'd stop repeating the behaviour and run out of material? So I think I remember having a session with my therapist where she said, 
you know, what you really need now is to not be dating anyone at all. You need, like, a year of celibacy. You need a proper... I'd say that's quite an interesting thing for a therapist to do, to actually issue advice. Oh, My understanding yeah. was that they mostly yeah. go, and how does that make you feel? What do you think you should do? Oh, no, waste of time for me. I, I can't have that. I've got an abundance of lovely women in my life who do that I needed tough and she said you need to now really know what it is to properly be on your own this thing of like love and attention from men and this has been predominant in your in your headspace for such a long time you need to really just remove that from your brain and, and see what's there and and she was completely right but I remember being like well I've got this dating column for the Sunday Times <laughs> Yeah, but I was quite lucky. They kind of coincided around the same time. Me coming out of therapy and realising that's what I needed to do and the column ending. It's kind of serendipitous. It all happened at the same time. And then I wrote the book. So circling back, I think the reason why I could write so openly and it not really scare me at all, so intimately, that book, with so much detail, is I just felt so... um, free and I felt so righteous everyone's hung out with a friend who's like deep in therapy they're so fucking annoying that's what that book was <laughs> and you managed to sell lots of copies now um, one of the other things we share you're invited to be an Agni artist did you hesitate? no oh. I pitched it oh did you? yeah you weren't invited no I wasn't you requested I finished the dating column then just wrote features for Sunday Times for a year and then they asked me to write another column and I was 29 and I remember at the time thinking oh I'm so desperate to I'm so desperate to you can't be an agony aunt in your 20s so I'm going to really really wait and then I had the opportunity to pitch column to them and they did go for it for those who haven't seen it how many questions do you answer a week? I answer one question a week yeah the editors sift through initially it was up to about 100 a week but then they send me about 15 to choose from, and then I choose one. My mother's agony column. Yes. For the, originally for The Sun from 1972, and then uh, The Sunday Mirror from about 79, I think, and then finally today. She got 1,000 to 1,500 letters a week, and all of them got answered. And she had a team to do it. Right. Do you ever look at them thinking that person needs an answer, and unfortunately I can't give it to them? I do. I think I've had to become more comfortable with that because of the last couple of years, I get so many emails and messages from girls. I felt a great weight of responsibility to, to reply to all of them. And then I just couldn't. I, you, you just don't have the time. Sometimes I'll get the feeling that I, this, I really do need to reply to that person, and I always will, but otherwise... And do you send them and say, you need some help, or...? I say you need more than me. But mainly I think the thing that people often are looking for... It's the same thing we're looking for when we're five and we're crying about something. is for someone to say, oh, my darling, that sounds awful. I am recognising this pain that you're in. I'm not going to diminish it. I'm not going to analyse it. I'm not going to dismiss it or say it can be solved. This feels like it must be really horrible for you. I'm so sorry. That's often just what people need. You sometimes see them go, actually, I know the exact answer this person needs. That's more just when I get those kind of emails yeah. or those letters. But for an agony aunt column, I do think you need specifics is key isn't it you want specific questions and specific situations and specific answers so you're not talking in platitudes but I'd be interested to know Claire did she find the same questions basically came up over and over again or the same themes oh absolutely I mean so much so that she quite early on actually constructed a thing called the standards book 
and it contained about 50 stock answers. Mm. Uh, the standards book is now held at the LSE. It's part of the London Women's Library. And those standards books have been used as research for a, by a lot of academics. Yeah. But they were these 50 letters. Um, and uh, oh, her assistants knew what they were. And Claire would, would go through every single letter um, and say standard seven, standard nine, standard ten, and uh, dictate an extra line or two where it yeah. felt necessary. So it was a, it was a, a full seven. Yeah. This is something I found reassuring that there are all these themes that keep coming up in the questions I get so far. And the age of the people changes, the gender changes, the economic background changes, their ethnicity changes, everything changes. But the questions stay the same. Do you see yourself as a, a sage then? Is this the accretion of everything you've been through that you're able to hand on? Um, I think the reason why I always thought I could do it mm-hmm. is... Um, first of all, I, I'm just quite nosy. I just love, <laughs> I love hearing about other people's mess. I have had quite a lot of experience in terms of not just myself and the relationships that I've been in and the friendships that I've had and the family situations I've been in, but in terms of the fact that I have this group of female friends that I've had for most of my life and all we do is agony on each other. I see them four times a week and we sit and we talk about our boss or our boyfriend or the person we're sleeping with or our mums and we all offer up our advice and it's a communal, cathartic experience and I feel like all that jabbering that I have done for 15 years, I feel like I've accrued some sort of idea of of what the various answers to make life easier might be. How, how long have you been doing the acne column for me? Oh, a baby. Two months, three months. All right. Baby, baby aunt. <laughs> I really want to be doing it now forever. I really, I know that won't happen, but I just love it so much. I feel like I've finally found the thing that I'm good at in journalism. Okay. Yeah. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Also from something else, The Fault Line, with legendary journalist and broadcaster David Dimbleby. This is the story of the crisis that unfolded over the 18 months following the terrorist attacks on the 11th of September 2001. A crisis that led to war in Iraq. This will not be a campaign of half measures, and we will accept no outcome but victory. From something else, this is The Fault Line. Bush, Blair and Iraq. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe now. I mean, the other reason why I think I probably am enjoying this column so much more is I've now left Twitter. Have you? Mm. Completely gone. Mm -hmm. I cannot... I am like a truther now. I just go from pub to pub and house to house and restaurant and restaurant spreading the word. Leave Twitter. Everyone's got to go. You've got to go. It will feel so good. I don't miss it at all, honestly. I don't. 
it, I mean, it's very good for promoting some of my work. You've got a novel coming out. Well, what you should segue. well, what you should do is do what I do, yeah. which is I have entrusted a best friend who I trust with my life and yeah. my passwords, and she now logs in. I send her the draft of my tweet and the link, and she tweets it for me. And then you're not there. And I'm not there. So this will be very useful as Ghost mm-hmm. comes out. Mm-hmm. Do you want to describe what the novel is? It's about a woman called Nina who has been in a relationship for most of her adult life and has never been on the dating scene. She's never done online dating. And she gets to a point of her early 30s where she feels like everything is kind of going to plan and everything's on track and she's got this great control of her situation. She's onto her third book that she's writing and she decides it's the right time to dip her toe into the water of dating and learn about online dating. She meets a man on her first date called Max who she falls for, hook, line and sinker. And then everything sort of unravels from there. What was really striking to me, obviously I'm aware of dating apps, but the degree to which it felt like dating has been gamed. Yes. It has been turned into a gaming thing. Yes. You've left Twitter. Mm. Is this also an outrage howl at the idea of the dating app? So I'm not really on apps anymore. I Were you at one point? Oh, yeah, Jay. Yes. Many, many, for many years. Was it awful? <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't want to be too pessimistic about it because I've got lots of friends who've met really amazing people on those apps and so many... Weddings now, I think it was like half of weddings last year were people who met on apps, yeah. I think that they're a great thing for lots of people. I think the gamifying of love and the morphing of potential love interests into avatars who don't who are anonymous and don't deserve like an enormous amount of respect and integrity and truth that really worries me but that's only one side of it I hate to generalise but I'm going to men don't come out very well from this book no they're all assholes. other the, than the dad other than the dad <laughs> and he is, in, he, is, he is in the advanced stages of dementia <laughs> uh, yeah I'm very aware of that and it's a criticism that I, I've already seen so well, far actually you give the um the long-term boyfriend. This isn't a spoiler because he's right there at the beginning of the yeah. book, the one that she'd been with for seven years and then it ended. Actually, the way you describe the end of that relationship is beautifully done. Thank um, you. He's all right. He's Although all right, he's a but bit he's, of a tit. he's a big baby. Yeah. He's a big baby. Um, that's the theme, really, of these, of these millennial so men. So is the novel Revenge? I think it's redress. I think it's... Uh, I think it's an examination and a lot of it isn't my experience I don't know anyone with dementia I was never in a seven year relationship she's a very different character to who I am so a lot of it is more just an exploration of a kind of collective crisis that I think a lot of heterosexual women feel Um, and a lot of it is about the infantilisation of of men and I think of of our generation and I think a lot of that is about the abundance of choice that they've been given because of these dating apps which if you're a woman who wants a family when you start dating in your 30s dating it is it is a very unfair patriarchal structure then Mm. it does it's 
it's much more complicated for women to navigate. It's much easier to be a man. I would like, I would love to be a man on a dating app. Looks great, sadly. <laughs> that's never going to be an option for me. <laughs> I've, I've occasionally thought nailing it on Grindr would be quite fun, but, um, yeah. you know, More what my can you do when on, you're straight? Well, my friends on Grindr are having a great time. <laughs> I mean, I just think there's a heterosexuals have just fucked up on so many levels. Like, I often look at my gay friends and think, like, we just need to be going to workshops where you guys are telling us how we should be conducting our relationships and our sex lives because we are fucking it up. <laughs> I really do think that. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. How was everything? Enjoyed? So good. Yeah, those noodles were so good. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Please have a look at our dessert menus. It's on our QR codes on your disposable menu in front of you. Great. Thank you. Uh... I don't have a massive sweet tooth. How about a chocolate tart? Yeah, let's do that. Can we get one chocolate tart with... But I'll tell you what, why don't you cut it down the middle for social yeah, distancing? Exactly. Social distancing. And we'll have half each. Yeah, thank you. One of the um, strong things in it is identity, who mm. you see yourself as yes. and how you create yourself and direct yourself out into the world and also losing yourself in relationships. Was that a thing that you were investigating from your own experience? Um, I think something I really wanted to investigate in that book is the idea of what makes us lovable, the nature of how and why we love people. So when you're looking at dating apps, it's like the erection of self. We're kind of offering over these symbols and these indicators of why we're lovable. This is how I vote. This is where I live. This is where I go on holiday. This is my cute dog. Um, all these things that we think are the indicators of identity that make us who we are and, and create the self and make the self lovable. You then fill in the gaps with your imagination. The reason I was looking at dementia is for the exact opposite reason. Everything that we're told in Western society makes the self and makes us lovable through dementia is demolished. Memories, political persuasion, appetite for food, it's all taken away. So what remains? And really, I think the point that I'm making in that book is incredibly cheesy, but that the self and the soul are two very different things. And the soul is the thing that, that we love of someone. It's quite deep, that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Sorry. For a white wine lunch, that's too deep, isn't it? <laughs> so in this uh, social distance world, we've decided to go for a sharing dessert. Yeah. Chocolate tart yeah. with mandarin sorbet. Lovely. Thank Lovely. you. And we've had it cut in half. That's cute, isn't it? It's gorgeous. Quick one. Yes. Are you writing another one? Yes, I hope so, yeah. I've got a whole plan for one in my head. Are, so. you, are you going to stay in a similar genre? In terms of themes? Well, are you about to write a, rem um, a historical romantic bodice <laughs> ripper? Are you about to write a space opera? Or do no, you think it's no. likely to be a, a, a book about of emotional relationships yeah, set yeah, in London? totally, totally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I hope so. I really do miss it. I miss it all the time. I miss those characters. I miss the process. It was a great, great joy. Um, and as we sort of head towards the end, mm. you've said that last meals, what would your last meal be, is a great, fun game of yours. Mm -hmm. um, I do have a bit of skin in the game here. Yes, I know. So, having published my last supper, <laughs> so what currently, and I suspect yours changes all the time. It does, which is why I love the premise of your book so much, that this is not a question that should be answered in five minutes. This is, this is a lifelong... 
100,000 words. Um, right now, what's yours? Right now, it is oysters because I just missed them so much when I was in lockdown. There you go, a bit of relatable content, very well. <laughs> Salt of the earth, that's me. Yeah. Um, oysters to begin with, and then spaghetti vongolet, the perfect tomato salad on the side, and then gorgonzola for my cheese course, and then a really retro pudding, like... Um, crepes is that all creme brulee instead I fed you lots of Chinese stuff soft shell crab dim sum absolutely delicious and now a chocolate tart with mandarin sorbet I can't ask you that question can I people have to buy the book too fucking right <laughs> um, all that remains is we'd say uh, Dolly Alton let, let me thank you for letting me take you out to lunch oh Jay thank you I've really enjoyed it thank good. you good that's the plan and we properly killed a bottle I know on a Tuesday lunchtime. <laughs> or is it Wednesday? <laughs> <laughs> There's your answer. There's my answer. <laughs> I often start these chats with something I have in common with my guests, but in Dolly's case, there was so much similar ground to cover, we had to rein ourselves in a bit. I sometimes forget that you're all listening in too. Um, Dolly and I dined on superb northern Chinese food at Hutong in the Shard, London. It's on the 33rd floor with amazing views. And chaps, if you do go, make sure to visit the loos. Uh, the urinals are right up against the floor-to-ceiling windows, so it's a pee with a view. What do you mean you didn't need to know that? You really, really did. And if you'd like to eavesdrop on a few more chats, feel free. There are many more episodes to keep you going. Also, please do share your favourites so that others can listen in too. It helps us to make more of them. And if you have a chance, please please do rate and comment. We'd love to know what you think. Out to Lunch is a Something Else and Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner, and Robert Rickenberg. The mix engineer was Josh Gibbs. The assistant producer was Rosie Marotra. The producer is Selena Ream, and the executive producer is Darby Doris. Additional production is from Steve Ackerman. Next time, we'll be shooting the breeze with American television writer, producer, creator of the sitcom Everybody Loves Raymond, and more recently, the brilliant Somebody Feed Phil for Netflix. It's Phil Rosenthal. You also said at one point that you were writing gags for Clinton. Is that right? That's right. He needed material to be funny, to tell jokes. Certain presidents are better than others. Clinton was amazing at it. Obama was amazing at it. It's funny, the Democrats seem to be <laughs> funnier than the Republicans. The Democrats do seem to be yes. funny. Did you ever write any yeah. gags for Obama as well? Yeah, his first joke, his first line at the gridiron dinner, his first dinner, was, was my joke. And I have never been prouder of anything in my life. It was so much fun. Mm-hmm.